So things are a little bit different this week and next week. We're, we're doing this. And um, I, think, I think we've got somewhat of a creation preschool happening. Is that right? In there or out here? Or it's just... There's something around the back there. Yeah, right. For creation, she's out there. Um, but we've got our primary school anchor kids in with us today. So good to see you guys. Um, I've got you in mind as I've been preparing this message. I hope you can follow along. I hope you've got a Bible there in front of you. If you don't, um, maybe get it on someone's phone and um, look up Titus. So you can open up to Titus chapter 3. And this is our final week in the book of Titus. So we're kind of wrapping up a series tonight. And, um, and then we'll do a bit of a two-week break. And then we're going to kick off with the Gospel of John in term four. So if you haven't read the Gospel of John before or it's been a while, get reading in the Gospel of John and get moving in that so that when we're together, we can... Um, my voice is a little bit hoarse, um, not because I'm sick, because you're not allowed to be sick and go to public things. Uh, it's because I've been screaming in a good way. You know, I had a surf with the kids yesterday where I got way too overexcited and did lots of hooting and, yeah, I get a bit excited sometimes and so a little bit gravelly, but that's probably kind of cool anyway, gravelly. <laughs> Um, this is one of those passages, like the one last week, if you were here last week, Dave preached for us from the kind of passage that you can, you can stick on your wall or put on a plaque or, I don't know, get tattooed on yourself. It's like if you want to try and summarise what we believe as Christians, these are the really cracking verses. So, guys, you know, if, if you're kind of new to these things or you, you need to be refreshed in what you believe, there's no better passages to go to than ones like this. I mean, look at verse 4. Just look at it straight up with me. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Um, There you go. If if you get nothing from tonight, underline that. If you've got a, a pen, it's okay to draw in your Bible. These are the kind of verses that you can hang your whole life off. And let me just start by saying this. Christianity is a saving religion. There's lots of different kind of religions that you can look at. And most of the religions, in fact, all of them will be about what you've got to do to get in some kind of relationship with some kind of deity. It's it's all about what you do or it's what you, principles you give yourself to, hoping that they will improve your life. Pretty much every religion bar Christianity is primarily just thinking self-improvement. Do these things and life will work better for you. But at its heart, Christianity is a saving religion. It's all about being saved or being rescued, which is why in that verse there, God is described as our saviour. See verse 4? But when the kindness and love of God, our saviour, first and foremost, your God is a saviour. Now, some of you are like, yes, that my God is my saviour is everything for you. But you know what? You'll only say yes to God being a saviour if you see yourself as someone who needs to be saved. Does that make sense? Otherwise, like if you think, no, no, I'm all right, a little bit of advice, a little bit of help, you know, a little bit of a fresh start from time to time, that, that's what I need, then the concept of God being a saviour won't really do it for you. But if you see yourself as someone who is like a beached whale, I got this picture the other day with... This time of year, actually it's all the time of year, there's, there's a whale or two beaching themselves somewhere. And it's really tragic. I saw this footage the other day of a whale washed up on the beach and stacks of people trying to get it off the beach. It was still alive. And everyone was um, panicking for all the right reasons. Let's get this thing back in the water. It does not belong on the beach. 
It belongs in the water. For some reason, it's on the beach. Let's get it back in, in there. And it's clear when you see a beached whale, there's nothing the whale can do to get itself back in the water. Am I right? You ever, you ever seen a whopping big... And this was like one of those... Um, what are the biggest whales? Like a blue whale or something? I don't know. It, it was massive. I've never seen a beached whale just like, right, I just get, get the flip on and get moved. A beached whale needs to be rescued. And this is the kind of sense we get with these kind of... If, if God is our saviour, then really you, that only is helpful if you understand yourself and actually all of humanity as needing to be saved. Like in the same kind of state as a beached whale where your only hope is to actually have someone come for you with more strength than you've ever had and drag you back into the place that you were born to be, which is in the ocean of relationship with your creator. Yeah, that's what you were made for. But sin means we're beached until you get rescued by a God who's a saviour. It's beautiful, isn't it? Come come and have a look at verse 3 with me there again. It says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy and being hated and hating one another. Um, Maybe you're the kind of person that reads these kind of verses and you're like, yeah, that's exactly me. At one time I was... And, and these words actually describe your life until you meet Jesus and get saved and then things begin to change pretty radically from the inside out and you're a different person now. And maybe, maybe that's you, you're like, yeah, I remember when. But maybe you're someone kind of who reads these verses and, and, and there isn't necessarily this really stark, you know, the rebel that I was before I became a Christian and then afterwards because maybe you grew up being taught about the love of Jesus from an early age and from a very early age you've always loved Jesus. And if that's the case, you've been given an incredible gracious blessing your whole life, likely from your parents or from some, you know, a teacher in church or something like that. And if that's you, then you can read verses like this. I mean, are you with me? You read verses like this and you're like, I'm not sure that I can describe myself as being foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved. It's kind of like I've always known Jesus, but I've had these different moments throughout my life. And this would be how I'd describe my own conversion, a conversion of multiple moments, I think. So some really key ones where I feel like I got the gospel and, and there was change, but multiple moments throughout my life where I kind of got it, you know, and, and grew in my faith and realised, oh, actually, you've got to live for this. Oh, this is, this is a, a God is watching my life. This really matters, all those kind of things. And maybe that's you with the multiple moments thing. But check, it, check this out. Paul, who wrote this letter, was a very, very, you know, passionately religious man. And he says, at one time, we too were foolish. So why is Paul, like possibly, you know, the most zealous religious man right through his whole life saying, yeah, one time I was like this too? It's because Paul considers like a religious life where you're just straining to obey everything in all your own strength to try to impress God and finally make it in. He looks at that life and he goes, yeah, that's foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. That's how he sees the religious life. So if you're a person who's kind of grown up with the gospel and you've always kind of loved God, um, it, it can be easy for you to look at this and go, I'm not sure how this works. But be careful. Be careful that if you've always grown up knowing about Jesus, that your life doesn't simply become an increasingly religious person. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you've, you just kind of learn, learn more and more things about what you should do and shouldn't do. It's possible. When you've got the gospel close by your whole 
life that you just become increasing religious which won't do anything for you I mean Paul gets converted pretty radically um, from being religious to being into a relationship with God Um, but maybe if you've got that stark contrast remember who you were before God never forget who you were before God and maybe if you're someone who's grown up with Jesus and you're still growing up with Jesus maybe what you need to be doing is thinking um, thinking who you'd be without Jesus who you would be without parents and aunties and uncles and friends who haven't taught you about Jesus, haven't taught you the gospel and how to live for him so that you have a hope of heaven. Think about where you'd be and understand your God is a God who shows up to save. And sometimes he does it through a whole life and family thing. But verse 4 and 5 again, look at this. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. I'm going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the motivation that God has to save. Like what what moves God to save people, to save you? What what made him take the steps towards saving? Because God took some big steps to send his son to die, to save you. What motivated him? And we're going to look at the method that he uses to save. And then if we've got time, the purpose. We'll see how we go. I'm not wearing a watch, so it's kind of dangerous to know if we've got time. It's like, just look at the sun. Just do the crocodile Dundee thing. <laughs> 4.45. Right? Come on, people. That was funny. <laughs> what is it that motivates God to save people? What is it that actually makes him send his son to pay the ultimate price to rescue beached whales in their sin, like you and I? What? Well, Look at the first half of verse 5. There's the answer. It's not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. So what's God's motivation in saving? It's not anything to do with you and what you like and what you can do to perform with all your own effort to impress. It's, it's, it's not that. It's actually, instead, it's because of his, what does it say? So what's God motivated by to save? Yeah, his mercy, which is something inside of him. That's what draws him to come and save us. And and I'm labouring this point because I want you to think about how you and I typically think about rescuing people or animals and what we're motivated by. God here is motivated by something within him, his own kindness, love and mercy to step towards us and save us. Um, And that's actually very different from usually how humans try to rescue and save or the motivation that's there. I'll tell you a story. I'm trying to tell stories. Um, so recently, um, when we were thinking, let's get a dog, you know, you have that moment, let's get a dog. You don't know if it's the right thing to be thinking, but you think, let's get a dog. We decided, let's get a dog um, in the move up to Coffs because maybe we could find a dog that's going to be a good kind of companion and a bit of emotional support. Um, what do they call them? Um, a what dog? Therapy. A therapy dog, yeah, yeah. Now, there are actually really trained therapy dogs, so, but this was more like, you know, in, you know um, as exciting as it is to make the moves, there's really tricky things, you know, and for the kids particularly. So let's get a dog so that when, when there's no parent to comfort, the dog can be the dog that they can pat, right? So you're thinking therapy dog. Um, now, before we went and, you know, found a kind of dog that's like that, Deb thought, Let, let's just check out the rescue dog scenario. Have you ever... Yeah, maybe has anyone here rescued a dog, done the pet rescue thing? Yeah? Some of you have done it. Da- where'd Dusky come from? Is, it a res- is she a rescue dog? No. 
Okay. So here's Deb's rescue dog experience going down to the local pound to try and see if there's a dog there that can be a therapy dog to help us as a family with our hardships. Um, not sure if we ever tried to do it. She went down to the local pound um, and um, walked in the front door and the lady said, sure, I'll show you the dogs that we've got. And they went down this dark corridor into the place where the cages are. And as they opened the door to get into where the cages are, they were firstly overwhelmed by the smell, which was just really kind of knocking some of my kids over. And it's like they couldn't even walk in there, but the smell was enough. But then as you walk down this corridor with cages either side, the dogs that were in the cages you know, don't look like therapy dogs, right? What do the dogs look like? They're, they're, the, yeah, they're, they're big and they're typically black. And, you know, you've got, you, you got your mongrel bull terriers and you've got your, your big rot wheelers and the, the kind of dogs the kids... Deb said it was just flat-out traumatic, right? So they're walking... I'm sorry if you're in pet rescue. Um, actually, I know Linda is. I'm not sure if Linda's here tonight. But um, this was their experience anyway, walking down this aisle going, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, can we go now? Can we get out of here? This is really frightening, right? And afterwards, Deb chatting to the lady, she, you know, Deb kind of tried to ask that question, like, are there any more dogs? <laughs> are there any, you got any other kind of, and, and she said, I think I know what you're asking. Um, no, we don't have any little, cute, attractive, tan-coloured, fluffy dogs. She said, whenever we do get one of them, and we hardly ever get them, they get snapped up in an instant. Now, why do the cute little fluffy dogs get snapped up in an instant? Because um, even though we're there to rescue big part of our motivation as well as I think compassion and, you know, empathy is, is attraction. Yeah? We typically want to rescue things we're attracted to. I mean, is it just me? I don't think it is because otherwise all the big black dogs would be rescued as well, but they're not. They stay there. And if they stay there long enough, they've got to get put down. All right? It's a bit tragic. All the little adorable, attractive dogs get rescued in an instant because as humans, we're not motivated simply by our own kindness and empathy and compassion. We've also got this other thing that's motivating us, which is we want things that are going to be nice to us. We want things that are going to look good, maybe make us look good and actually work well, which is, it's got to work for your family. I'm not having a go at anyone. We ended up going and getting one of those labradoodle things, right? Because, you know, it kind of works better. But here's the thing. Our motivations in rescuing are mixed. God's are not. God's motivation is his own kindness Love, mercy, and nothing else. So he comes and rescues us, which means you're the big black dog. Yeah? You're not the cute little fluffy, adorable thing that God walked down the cages and went, oh my goodness, look at them. Aren't they lovely? God's like, I tell you what, it's not because of the righteous things you have done. There's actually nothing in you that made me go, oh, I would really love this one for myself. God's like, big black dog. And he's the God who goes after big black dogs because he's just completely motivated by his own kindness and how better to actually ex- show your mercy and your kindness. To, to go. I mean, have a look around. You, you know, you're not looking at adorable, fluffy puppies, are you? No, you do look all right. See, you get the point, don't you? God's motivation is nothing to do with what you're like. Which, which is humbling, by the way. As, as humans, we typically do want to hear that there's something about us that maybe motivated God to come after us. But then we hear this rude shock. It's just His mercy. It's just His love. 
You've been justified. You've been made right with God, but it's just by his grace. It's not anything of your own. It's not your own performance. That's not what makes you savable. It's just God's mercy. You go, that one, there's the motive. The motivation of God is just his own mercy. What an incredible God. Method. Once God decides he's actually going to save a person, he's, he's got his eye on a big black dog and he's going to come after you. How does he actually do it? Because we experience the human side. We, we experience things from our end, which is, I don't, I don't know what your experience is like. It's something like this, yeah? It's like God is real. That he, he loves me. I'm, I'm rebelling from him. And so usually our experience is what it needs to be is repentance and belief. So I'm going to believe in God and what he's done in Jesus. I'm going to turn from my sin. And they're all very human actions that you're responsible for. But we just see our side. But what, is, what does God do? What does he do? Because we know what we do. What does he do? Well, look, look, look at what he does. Look at his method. It's the second part of verse 5. So 5b, if you want to split the verse up like that. Look at it. I'll read from the beginning of verse 5 because it's hard to know where it's up. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And here's the method. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. You got that? So how does God actually come and save? Well, he washes he, he, he washes you with something pretty incredible. It's not just water. I mean, when we think about washing, you typically think liquid and you're washing off what's on the exterior. Yep, that's what you do when you have a shower or a bath. If you sit in your bath for too long, just sit in your own washing stuff, right? But, but when God washes, the language of washing here, it's an internal washing. I just thought of something, I won't say. But it's like, it's like God comes with the inside and he doesn't wash you with a liquid. He washes you with the Holy Spirit. Yeah? Some of you are smiling. You know where my mind went there. And it's like it's, it's, a, it's a pouring over. It's like a pour over if you're in a coffee. It's like he washes you with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a clean up on the outside. God just doesn't make you a little bit more redeemable, a little bit nicer. And he comes and from the inside with his Holy Spirit remakes you. See what language it's there? It says, he saved us um, through washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes and actually washes you from the inside, you get it's rebirth and renewal. It's more than just a cleaning up the outside. Rebirth. God comes and actually recreates you from the inside out. You become a new creation. You get to start over. And this is the, you see this right through the scriptures, actually, the way God comes and actually rescues us from the inside out. You know, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, one of your classic gospel passages in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, you'll see language like this. I'd, I'd rather than, actually, if you want to flick there, that's okay. But I'll, I'll give you, um, look at my watch and now I'll just keep going. I'll, I'll give you... Um, you know, verse 24 in Ezekiel chapter 36 talks about sprinkling clean water, which just sounds like an external washing until you hear what the clean water does. It means you get forgiven. You know, you get sins removed. That's an internal cleansing. You get to verse 26 in Ezekiel chapter 36. And, and really what he's talking about is a heart transplant. He removes your old, cold, dead heart that hates him. 
and wants to do nothing but rebel from him. He takes that out. It's like open heart surgery and he puts in a new heart which is warm towards him. And that is why you can then start to feel desires towards him and love for him. Otherwise, you spend your entire life rejecting him and hating him. So when you first started feeling positively disposed towards God, it's because by his spirit, he was giving you a new heart. Otherwise, you'd keep hating him forever or just politely ignoring him, which is just as offensive. But God comes and gives you a new heart. And what comes with that, you see it in Ezekiel 36, is a desire to obey. You find yourself going, I actually want to please God. I desire to live in a way that he actually loves rather than is grieved by. But even that desire you're feeling is because he's given you a new heart. You come to the New Testament and Jesus picks up on a lot of this imagery. And if you go to John chapter 3, which we're going to spend some time in in the next teaching series, what's Jesus' language as far as what needs to happen for a person to get saved? Someone yell out John 3 kind of language at me. He says, you must be... Give it to me. Did someone say it? I'm just going to do this. You must be... Come on, guys, John 3. It is John 3, isn't it? There you go. Good on you, young man in the front there. Oh, okay. that's it. And that's what, we wor- that's what we're worried about. What if I get it wrong? It's all right. I'll just correct you publicly in front of everyone. You'll feel fine. <laughs> um, yeah, G- G- like someone comes to him and says, well, how does this work? What have I got to do? And Jesus goes, here's the deal. You must be born again. And the guy basically goes away confused. He doesn't get it in the moment. But you've got to be born all over again by the Spirit of God. You get new birth. This is the way Jesus describes it. Now, in the 60s and 70s, a term got coined. That's how you say it, isn't it? Um, and, and there was a type of Christian called a born-againer. Or have you ever been asked, are you born again by another kind of Christian? The term's kind of stuck for a while, where there were types of Christians who were born again and other kinds of just normal Christians, right? But here's the deal. A born-again Christian is not a certain type of Christian. It's just the only type of Christian. A Christian is someone who's been born again by the Spirit of God. You've experienced rebirth. And maybe not everything's changed in your life. And in fact, if you're anything like all of us, it's an ongoing process. You're a work in progress. God's you know, making you more like Christ. It's not just this radical transformation, although some possibly experience that more than others. But it is a rebirth by the Spirit of God. He comes and he pours out his Spirit in you. So you're not a Christian simply because you're not a Muslim or you're not a Buddhist or an atheist. You know, some people say, I'm not that, so yeah, I I guess I'm Christian. No, no, it's not Christian to simply be someone who's not a Muslim. Um, You're not a Christian simply because you believe that there is a God out there. Heaps of people believe that there is a God somewhere and it doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian simply because you grew up in a household where the people around you kind of were. What can happen there is you can develop what you might call a second-hand faith, which actually part of being a kid growing up in a household is you grow up with your parents' faith and you lean on their faith and you have your own second-hand faith, you know, for, for many years until, and here's what's really important, you develop your own first-hand faith where you yourself know God 
in an increasingly personal way yourself and own him as a saviour for yourself. But simply to grow up in a Christian household doesn't necessarily make you Christian. Getting baptised doesn't make you Christian. Knowing the Christian lingo, the walk, the talk doesn't make you Christian. What makes you Christian is being born again. Now, did any of you guys have any choice over your own birth? Did you? You had no say in it, did you? No say in it at all, as that song goes. That's not a good song. Timmy's shaking his head at me. You, no one chose anything to do with your own birth, and it's similar as a Christian, very similar. God decides to come and give you new birth by the Spirit of God. You know that's happening for you when you find yourself wanting to repent of your sin and wanting to put your trust in Him, and you are responsible to do so. God's the one who gives new birth. You can call it baptism in the Spirit. That's why we do water baptism, actually. You, if, if you are a Christian who's been baptised in the Spirit, you've come to put your trust and repentance in Jesus and you haven't been baptised with water, it, it, it's not the end of the world. It doesn't matter. But if you, it's, it's a good thing to be baptised with water because it's like a reenactment of spirit baptism, which is rebirth where you get taken down into the water and brought up as a new person, like you're laid into the grave and you die to sin and you rise again to Christ. Water baptism is like a reenactment of spirit baptism to be born of God. There's the method. And if you're sitting there thinking, wow, I don't know if that's happened for me. How do I get that to happen for me? You're asking the very right question. In fact, anyone who starts asking the question, how do I get this rebirth? God's on your case. You wouldn't have been asking that question. If, if you're thinking, wow, I think maybe I've lived my whole life just religious. Yeah, yeah, pull away. Pull away, won't do you any good. Simply knowing how to obey rules is not what gets you in. Um, you need to be saved. You need God to pull his spirit out in you. And um, wouldn't it be awesome if Anchor was and continued to be over the years a place where many, many people would be able to come and be saved. Yeah? That's why you start a new church. So people don't know Christ yet and come and put their faith in him. So let's make that our prayer. Here's the final point. I think I've been going for long enough, yeah? Look like you're still with me, that. Don't nod too enthusiastically about finishing up there. Come on. Um, the purpose, like we've got the motivation, what drives God to save. you got the method, but what's why? Like what's the... What's the end game? What God after by saving us? Is he just looking for friends? No, not lonely. Is he just kind of trying to put together the best team ever seen known to man on the planet? That's uh, not the case because he picks the black dogs, right? So what's, what's God doing here? What's the purpose of our salvation? Well, verse 7. All right, come there with me. So that... Having been justified by his grace, that's a way of talking about salvation, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So that's, that's, that's the whole deal, that you'd be saved so that you would become an heir. Now, we don't use that language too much in our society, but the idea of being an heir to the throne would mean you're the, um, you're the child that inherits everything that the king has. Or an heir to your parents, like you're the firstborn and you get everything. Back in the ancient world, the firstborn got everything. So if you're born second or third, it's like, what? I'm so glad that's not going to be the case, is it, Dad? You know, no. 
I'm a second born. Oh, the Bible says so. Oh, not, yeah, okay. All right. But here's the deal. When you get saved as a Christian, you become a firstborn. You become that legitimate child that gets everything. And really everything is this, not the stuff that we get excited about or maybe the stuff you think might be in heaven, but you get God forever. You get life with him and it begins now and it goes on into eternity. That's why it says there, having been just, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That's, the, that's what you get. And, and, and there's nothing more that you need or nothing more that you want, though we want many things. This is it. It's life with God forever. That's, that's beautiful. And we've got birthright to it. Eternal life. There is a life to live now in the present, though. And Titus has been banging on about, well, Paul's been banging on to Titus about a whole bunch of really practical ways of living. It's not, it's not that we just look forward to heaven. There's a particular life to be living now as heirs of eternal life, as people who have been saved, who as people who have been justified by his grace. There's a particular life to live. I mean, look at verses 1 and 2, and I'll kind of finish on that. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Paul keeps saying, be ready to do whatever is good. And I tell you what, in the kind of time um, where we've got the COVID crisis happening and restrictions that we don't love, you know, and, and, and lockdown that for in some parts of our country, just, you know, the people living under it just feel like it's been going way too long and you want to rebel. Um, one of the ways of actually showing you're a saved person, Paul says here, is actually to be subject to rules and authorities. Actually obey them and do what's right. Now, it can be a little bit tricky when the rulers in your country, you, you think that they're putting a rule on you that, that the ultimate authority, God, doesn't want you to live under. There's, there's a little bit of trickiness there. But one of the key ways you show you're a saved person, an heir to the throne, someone who has eternal life and will have forever, is actually that you are subject to rulers and authorities. You're willing to obey the rulers that God has actually placed over us. So you'd live a, what does it go on to say? Slander no one. Be peaceable. Considerate. Always gentle towards everyone. And and just skipping back up now here to um, verse 8. Let, let, let's finish on verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and Paul's saying that in regards to what he's just said, possibly the whole of the letter, but I think just what he said. Um, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that, um, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Excellent and profitable for everyone. The practical life of following Jesus peaceable, considerate, gentle. There you go. So we've got a life to live now in the present and we've got a future of eternal life that actually begins now and it's, a, and it's a God who saves us by grace, who's enabled it to be. Our friends, I hope that's helpful. I hope you found the book of Titus helpful. Um, oh, it's a golden little letter. And if you're looking for passages that you need to kind of dig into to help you understand your faith and what the gospel is. Keep coming back to Titus. Look at the end of chapter 2 that we got from Dave last week. Look at chapter 3. These are golden passages which remind us that, yeah, God, our God is a God who saves and uh, 
there's nothing in you particularly that's drawn him to save you particularly. It's just his mercy. It's just his love. It's just his compassion. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we, we sit here with, with your word open to us, glad to hear the sound of your voice and submit to the truth of who you are. You, you're our saviour. Uh, you're, you're a God who's, who come to, to us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we're so grateful for your grace and your kindness. We're so grateful for what you're motivated by. We're so grateful that we're saved, not because of our own performance, but because you're the one who comes to us. There would be no hope for us if it was the other way around. Um, Father God, we're grateful that you live in us by your spirit. And we ask that you would well up in us. You would pour out your spirit on us more and more and enable us to live for you in a way that is truly honouring towards you. And Lord, for those who are sitting here tonight and thinking, I've got to get something sorted out, Lord, would you enable them to do that? Would you enable them to share what's really going on with someone tonight? Would you, would you Lord, would you come and draw near by your spirit and enable them to be saved? We're so grateful for you, Lord. Amen.